We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm speaking with Registered Architect, Director of Bale Architecture and the New South Wales Architect Practice Examination Convener, Melanie Bale-Smith. In 2018, Melanie won the Australian Institute of Architects Paula Whitman Prize for Gender Equity for being an exemplary leader for the architecture profession in practice, education, research and policy development over a sustained period of time. Melanie and I discuss the ethics of architecture, working with and managing project teams including clients and builders, and architects' responsibilities when they're leading and administering projects across all stages of design. Let's jump in. Today we're going to be speaking about ethics, practice, and recognising the real work of the architect. And yeah, I think this is going to be a really great chat because I started off my experience doing contract admin as well, and I find it a very interesting and sometimes unspoken about part of the architecture process. Yeah, I guess it would be really great if we can start off with maybe an example of a project or some experiences that you've had where on certain projects where we get some builders who quite diligent and pouring over your drawings very closely and they're just absolutely hammering you with exhaustive requests for information. Do you have a project like that that you wanted to share with us? I've actually had good examples of pouring over the drawings and hammering with questions, but sometimes that occurs in a way where it is combative. It's deliberately to trip up the architect or find holes so that variations, whether they be for time or money or both, are sought by the builder to make up for shortfalls. And yes, we've worked with and continue to work with some amazing builders. So I'm certainly not here to build a bash, you know, I know some people do that. But I think one of the things that is challenging as the architect when you're doing the contract administration in a project is this capacity that you must retain, maintain, build, because it can be depleted just because uh, contract admin and construction projects in general can be quite wearing and they're never straightforward. Even the most straightforward build we've had still had challenges. But I think it is this real challenge between remaining and acting impartially in the contract, but also that you are being engaged by the client Usually you've been walking alongside that client for quite some time by, by the time you have signed a contract, by the time the contracts have been formed and the client signed the contract. So you already have this established relationship. So immediately, even if it's a builder you've worked with before and you might have a long-term, obviously, relationship, which is through the projects they've done for you, nonetheless, that relationship through the contract of the client with the builder or the owner and the contractor is something that has challenges because you do need to remain impartial in administering the contract, but you do also need to support the client and assist them every way that you can ethically to uphold their side of the contract and to keep them informed about what is going on. And when you're mentioning the ethics of, of the contract administrator in this architect architect's role, what shape does that take in the relationship between architect with client and then the architect between client and builder? I mean, the really easy question and the question that I would give my master's students, so I'm an associate professor at UNSW, so, you know, when I say to, you know, new builders, I teach this stuff, I am not lying, I have been teaching professional practice for a long time, and the simple answer is, well, what the architect is charged with doing as a contract administrator is very clear it's in the contract. And you could just point to that and say that's your responsibility. But, of course, building projects are organic. Humans are humans, you know, the humans, Mm -hmm. and they do human things and even the most stern builder can lose their cool. You know, all sorts of things happen, as we know. When you're also talking about then that relationship of being engaged by the client and where the ethical position is, So much of it, I I think, ultimately comes down to 
communication. So it comes down to maintaining the clear lines of communication in the contract. It comes down to keeping the client informed of where cost and time are going. Now, that is not straightforward. Here's a good example. Practical completion date, it's in the contract. It gets, uh, it can be amended in accordance with, you know, the procedures under the contract. But then, you know, there's the practical side of practical completion. Should the client move in the day after? Is that really the best thing for them to be doing? What happens when it looks like the practical completion date won't be met and your client cannot renew or extend their rental property or accommodation any longer? They are over living with the in-laws. They've been living with the in-laws already six weeks longer than ever expected. How do you manage these things? What is your role? As a contract administrator, your role is to process paperwork and keep people informed of the facts, just the facts, ma'am, you know? But the reality is is you're dealing with a human who has to organise their life, who's stressed because, you know, they've spent a lot of money by this point in the contract. And so that is where the architect has to be exercising communication, be thinking in an empathetic way, you know, understanding that there's a lot of different stresses that are playing upon the client and also continuing to assist the client with any final things that they might be responsible for in realising the contract and reminding the client why it's not a good idea to move in early and affect practical completion, you know. And so, so many of these things, they look great in black and white on paper. Oh, yeah, it's very straightforward. But it's the reality of putting it into practice and doing it in a way where it manages the overall process and manages the client's expectations. That is where ethically it can be, I mean, I could just be completely disinterested in my client's accommodation challenges and just go, oh, well, sucks to be you, you know, but the fact is, is that that is, of course, completely not the right approach because it doesn't demonstrate that we have any empathy. And in a way, it shows that we, if we acted like that, it shows that we don't really care about what is the typical project process for someone who's doing a house, because there is so much more to think about from the point of view of the I guess the emotional overlay of doing a house, you know, we've done lots of projects that haven't been houses and practical completion is definitely not subject to the emotional overlay that you get when you're doing a single dwelling project. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot to consider on that. And I mean, the idea of the responsibility of the architect really to be fair and honest throughout that whole process and to factor in the human experience of the client with the contractual responsibilities of the builder and the client's contractual responsibilities mm-hmm. at you know at, at the end of the day it's really all what's written down on paper but like you say but uh, bring everything into it mm-hmm. it's a really important yeah, side of balancing all those things together so i guess coming back to those projects where there might be builder who's you know very diligently going through all the documents and just sending through request after request after request. Have you got any uh, projects that you wanted to share experiences on about what that process is like for a contract administrator and how that has impacted your projects in the past? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, the diligence factor can be really demonstrating that the builder is genuinely interested in doing a fantastic job, but it can also demonstrate that the builder, like I said before, is looking for all sorts of loopholes, trip hazards, errors, other ways in which the architect and and, the, and then therefore the owner or the client is then going to be subject to a whole bunch of variations. And so we had a project in, we have a project that was finished a few years ago and there were unfortunately assumptions made, I think, possibly on on both parts, to be honest, about the level of detail that the builder had really gone into when they had priced the work. This was a builder who we had done an extremely successful job with and the client was really enamoured by that particular project that we had done. It had been published widely, et cetera, et cetera, and garnered a lot of attention. He thought the builders had done an amazing job. He met with the builder. So this was a builder that you'd also worked with in the past. and we had had an amazing experience with But then what happened was that the the foreman that had done that, had worked on that project, had been, we'd been told that he was going to work on this project that I'm I'm sort of using as the example. And then he wasn't. We started the work and then we were told, oh, actually, 
he's not going to come to your project. He's dealing with a bigger project of ours, which was a, a different scale of res. It wasn't single residential. It was a multi-res type project. Oh, right, okay. That sort of changes the landscape a little bit. And we were gifted a very competent carpenter and a lovely fellow who had never been a foreman in his life. And what also, so there was a real steep learning curve for him and this was, had some complex, house had some very complex elements in it in terms of framing, which I think if he'd been doing the carpentry work, he would have been fantastic. But trying to pull all the trades together was a really new thing for him. But the builder also in the pricing process, I think, had really sorely underestimated the level of detail required. I think through the previous project, kind of made a whole lot of assumptions about the sort of things we were expecting in this this new project and not really paying attention to, again, the intricacies or complexities of this particular build. And so it then became obvious that he'd really undercooked his price. And that came out when we got to the roof and the contractor who we'd used on the previous project, who was an outstanding roofing subcontractor, was not engaged for the work. And we said, why ever not? This is three times more complex than the last one you've done. You know, it's going to be in your interests to use this this subcontractor. And he said, no, no, we didn't allow for his price. And we were just all sort of gobsmacked and, again, on our behalf, if we'd really wanted this guy to be in there, we should have put him as the nominated subcontractor in the schedules. And this is where if you really, you know, the learning curve in the office was, well, we should not, we should not have assumed that the builder would have looked at, taken one look at the project and gone, oh, this is a project for blah, blah, roofing. You know, I'm going to be relying on their expertise and interest in detail so that I don't have any problems because, as we all know, Water ingress is one of the greatest <laughs> areas of insurance claims against builders and architects. So you would think that any builder with half a brain is going to look at the element that lets the most water in, which is usually the roof. Other things can let water in, as we know, but particularly the roof. He, he, he made no attempts to sort of, he clearly had made no attempts to really consider what was required. And again, as time went on, it's very, my observation, that it's very possible that he that the guy who owned the company probably didn't do the the pricing work and it was left to someone else who had no experience on our previous project. So, again, we learned a few things about we shouldn't assume that just because someone's worked with us before and worked on a, on a high-detailed project, they know what we want. But also the flip side is, is that there weren't enough questions asked. So, really, a lot of the problems that came down to communication and people not being, the builder not being inquisitive enough in the first instance. But, you know, that then I think having the very inexperienced foreman just was the beginning of what we then were put through, which was endless questions, constant, which really were a very thinly veiled attempt at constant money grubbing basically on things that were never allowed for. And various interpretations of things in the specification, which were really just spurious, you know, and and basically it became obvious that the builder was on a mission to just wear the client down and to make us look as bad as possible to the client. And it worked for a little bit. And then when the client sort of realised, when we, we sort of went through a whole lot of things with him and he realised just really what was going on, he became very angry at the builder and I said, look, we've got a long way to go. There's no point getting angry at the builder. Uh, yes, I think we should express our displeasure when we can in an objective manner, but it really wore everyone down. I think both the client and us just felt like we were being gaslit like in every single site meeting and everything was difficult and we like everything, every possible thing was difficult, you know, everything was a problem. And it's like, you know, yes, there's latent conditions, but, mate, if you're the builder who's got so much experience and did the last project, latent conditions are part and parcel of this kind of work. So you can't blame me for the latent conditions and then the fact that you have to invest more intellectual energy into the project than you might like to. And that was that was also what became apparent. It wasn't just that they had underpriced the work, but they weren't willing to invest the intellectual energy, you know, the the headspace 
to do the job properly. And they had a foreman who was learning and maybe now five years later, four or five years later, he is capable of doing a job like that. But at the time, he certainly couldn't just walk on site and go, yeah, I know what's required here. And so that required enormous effort on our part to do the right thing by the client, you know, but (laughs) that's it's not something that's written to your client architect agreement. You know, again, it's the black and white versus the reality. Yeah. I guess the the black and white aspect of this, would the, would the example have been if they were pro, trying to process a legitimate variation, it's where there was something clearly omitted in mm-hmm. the documentation, but in this case, what was, the, what was the thing that sort of crossed the line? Oh, look, there were some claims on structural elements where they had just clearly misinterpreted the drawings. But to make the point to the builder that we were not going to process these claims, we had to literally get the structural engineer out there to walk them through the drawings. I mean, it was kind of outrageous. And the client was kind of like, I can't believe I'm paying the structural engineer to come here to explain to the builders why they can't make the claim on this variation. And then they had to unpick work. And so there was a bit of tail between legs and whatever. And so the thing was, was that instead of sort of accepting that they'd done something wrong, unpicking this work and then learning from it, it almost made them even more sort of determined to sort of put things in our face. I think what was interesting though just on the roof was that the first roofing contractor they got decided it was all too difficult. The second roofing contractor they got was a real live wire and very unpredictable and ended up only doing sort of 80% of the work and being very problematic And to finish the work and sort out the defects that then became a problem during the DLP, you can imagine who came and did that work and it was the roofing contractor. He should have been engaged in the first place. And the builder lost so much money because of the defects and the issues that emanated from this kind of wildcard roofer who'd done the bulk of the work. It would have been better off getting the right person in the first place. You know, so not that I sit there and go, well, schadenfreude, you know, well, well hmm, ah, I told you so. But it was a very clear example, I think, particularly to my team, you know, who were all, a number of them became registered architects working on this project with me. And I think for them, they learnt an awful lot. Things that, again, you know, nobody's going to ask you that question in the registration exam, but it certainly sets, puts you in good stead, I think, mm-hmm. for the vagaries of practice. Well, I think knowing about that there were issues at the end during the defect liability period, Mm. that also justifies your worries, I guess, earlier on where some people, you know, hearing the story that you might not have got your uh, preferred contractor of choice, some people might have thought, oh, look, you know, they're getting the job done, it'll be okay. And I think sometimes, you know, when, when an architect gets a bit worried knowing that they worked really well with someone else and then mm-hmm. saying someone else on site and you just sort of some red flags start to go up because you you really appreciate quality and yes. knowing that what you would what you documented got built the right way the first time so mm. and i think ethically you know we had to even though we were very frustrated with the builder we still had to continue to do our job as the contract administrator there were fair variations that were absolutely warranted we couldn't sit there and we couldn't, you know, show our displeasure through taking as long as possible to process things and and coming back with a million questions to frustrate the contract administration process because, you know, I hear about these stories from up from builders and that unfortunately some architects, you know, do decide to meet out their frustrations by frustrating the contract in a way or the contract processes as they push it as far as they can to kind and I think, well, that's a really poor way of communicating displeasure or problems. It's more appropriate to sit down and say that say the builder, we need to have a sit-down meeting and talk about this, mm. rather than being sort of passive aggressive through the contract. And I've definitely heard some pretty passive aggressive sort of contract administration tales that make me go, that's from a that all that does is undermine the integrity of the profession. It makes builders think that architects are mugs, you know. Mm. Yes, they might have been able to do those things under the letter of the law of the contract, but is that ethically the right thing to do, you know? And, again, so much of ethics is the application of our own moral position on things and thinking through, thinking about empathy, thinking about the greater good, thinking about the other. These are all different parts of thinking about ethics, 
Uh, Thomas Fisher in his book, you know, The, the 50 uh, Ethical Dilemmas for Architects, which is an American book, but it is an excellent book and I really think every architect should read it. But he talks about the four different types of ethics. He talks about duty ethics and utility ethics. And it's a very clear diagram to help break down the different areas of ethics that the architect should consider and not just the, oh, well, I need to behave myself. But what does that really look like or or mean? And it's not just about behaviour like I'm a good boy or I'm a good girl. You know, it's so much more complex than that. And I think when we look at our obligations to consider how we can design more sustainably, how we can better work with traditional owners, how can we work better with community, how do we treat other professionals, how do we value ourselves and not, you know, have a race to the bottom on fees because that to me is a significant ethical issue, is actually what we're doing ourselves to the profession when we don't value ourselves as a whole. That's the gamut of ethical considerations for the Arctic is huge. And, I mean, you could feel very weighted down by that and go, oh, my gosh, Melanie, you know, you just made me feel, you know, really depressed my day, like, talking about that. But we're a better profession if we have these, if we, if we think about our actions in a much broader way and not just through the design lens. And so this is the, this is the challenge I have with students at university is sort of, and I also say with architects, and I think one of the things that's frustrating as a convener is that you see year in, we have seen year in, year out, and this is very anecdotal, but the questions in the part two of the examination, you know, the, the registration, repeatedly the questions that are being answered with the least capability, unfortunately, are questions about ethics. Sometimes only 30% of the candidature are getting the questions about ethics or ethical considerations correct, and that is very concerning because that reflects something about practice. So I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal any more of my statistical sort of back end that I get as the as the APE convener in New South Wales, but that is an observation that has now been brought out into sort of the public realm a number of times now, which is the conveners as a whole across Australia are continue to be concerned about how the candidate chair are approaching these questions. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to make. And I think it also, the stories that you're already starting to reveal, I mean, it just, it also lends itself to good service, you know, providing great service to the community and, you know, having clients out there who will come back to you for repeat work, but also who can let other people know out there the great work that you do. And you shared one story about a particular client with me, a particular client who you had worked with in the past and they decided to not work with you for whatever reason, but then they came back to you again. I mean, do you want to share mm. that story with with the audience? Yeah, it's a fa- it's a really fascinating story, actually. So I very early in so so I have my current practice bail architecture, and and previous to that, I had a partnership with another practitioner, and we did this project as a fairly early project in our in that practice. And it was a commission that came through the daughter of a client of someone, you know, of a project that I had done when I was working for someone else. So this daughter had approached me and she said, oh, well, it's not really my project. It's her then partner's project, her, her, her then boyfriend. And so, and it's in Tasmania. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so within a couple of weeks, I found myself being flown down to this incredible site in northwest Tassie. And I can't reveal the location. I'm held to great secrecy to this day. It was a really interesting project. The client had bought this very interesting, quite large piece of land. It had a sort of defunct sort of forest that had gone a bit wild, but an amazing setting. And he wanted to build effectively a contemporary version of a, of a log cabin or a timber cabin. So a very modest house. And something that was sort of a a getaway, I guess you could put it like that. He lives in Sydney but travels down to this this location regularly. And so we we did the design, we got got the planning permit, we did construction drawings and then he said, thank you very much. And 
over a period of time, um, you know, we had no, by this, we were like, oh, okay, see you later. We weren't engaged for contract administration and he made it very clear in the nicest way that he was probably going to take his time to build the project. He had no particular time frame. There was sort of a, a funny sort of shed that was already on the site that he could live in So um, when he was down there. So it, we never really heard anything else about this project and how it had gone. And then 13 years later, we get this phone call to the office. I'm wondering if I can speak with Melanie. And I wasn't in the office. One of my staff took the message. She said, oh, we've just had a phone call from this client, this past client, and he said, you did a project in Tasmania. I was like, well, we've only done one project in Tasmania, so I wonder what he's ringing about. And then what transpired was an amazing conversation when I did speak with him about how we had designed to the flood levels but they had had a flood of Noah's kind of flood epic proportions that had basically swallowed up the house and completely ruined the interiors of the house. Structurally the house was fine but ruined the interiors. He had a insurance payout and he wanted to not only engage us to redo the house but actually to undo the changes that he had made to the design original design which during the construction the original construction which he greatly regretted making but also since then he had met someone he sort of was no longer with this person who he'd been with when we first met him and had a wife and children and the whole sort of way that the house was being used also needed to be a little bit sort of reimagined and to fit with the way that they had over time become accustomed to visiting and living in this house across various holiday periods and so forth and That was amazing because to have sort of reflected on what had been built, to acknowledge that actually the architect's design was in fact the right design and did a whole bunch of things that these changes to the design didn't do, but then also to say to also feel that he still had a relationship with us that he could come back and ask us to sort of a mea culpa, I'm sorry I did these things. will you have me back to fix them up? But also here's these other things that we want to consider. That was, I think, an amazing testament to the conduct and the way we had serviced him and listened to him in that first process. And so we then embarked on a reimagining, a re-enlivening of the, the house. Of course, as time had gone on, various other planning and other things had changed. And yet what was interesting was that we weren't made to jump lots of hurdles. Council were very understanding about the approach that we were going to take. And so we were able to kind of bring the house back to what it was and then make it better again, you know, better at, a, at another level. So, and the client is, is you know, he loves it. He, he really loves it. He really feels like we've, it's now, and now everything is right because the architects came back and invested more of their you know, um, I guess their skillfulness and and our reflection on the design, my own growth as a designer. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm out there designing timber cottages that look like that project all the time. Um, not at all. I, I And I, I don't necessarily want to pursue those sorts of projects all the time, but it's a very special project. It's a, it's a And it's amazing the ongoing sort of friendship slash relationship I have with that client who will always sing our praises till you know till <laughs> till the end of our days I think because because of uh, I guess his appreciation for what we had actually really brought in the first place and that he had cast aside and then realized oh that was not the right thing to do and so I think instances like that and there I actually have a number of <laughs> client stories like that where you know what we designed originally or maybe it's a you know there's one client who we did their house originally and they had no children then they fell pregnant through IVF then they had another child out naturally and then decided to try IVF again and ended up with four children and so the house which had never been designed for four children because of the way we had designed in our approach to kind of a loose fit meant that the house was robust enough to kind of take everyone on board and still work really well. And then they engaged, you know, many years later to do a studio and a pool and a a sort of a storage and sort of reconcile the rest of the site with the landscape 
which we hadn't fully done in the first project. And those clients are still living in that house 17 years later and they love it and they'll never move. And it's wonderful. I, I don't think it's just repeat clients who feel warmly towards us when they see how design over time has served them so well and supports their well-being and their the way they want to live their lives and the way they live they live their lives has also changed so when they see that the design can support all those changes the design and what we did continues to speak to them and i think that's very powerful yeah and i feel like i hear quite a few stories about this where an architect has worked up towards a town planning set of documents and then the drawings might have been passed on to or the packages passed on to a design and construct company or something like that. I think sometimes the stories that I've heard from clients when that shift happened and they felt like the service was was different was that there was a prioritisation on completing the project, on getting it done, but then while some people might find it exhaustive to have an architect explore their project and really tease it out and pull it apart and ask all of these questions about what's this going to like, what's this, is this going to work for you in 10 years, is this going to work for you in 20 years, all of those questions that some people might think, come on, let's just keep people dry and warm. <laughs> that can sometimes be the big big shift. Have you felt that that is part of that process that maybe the, um, the first story that you shared with us might have lent towards? Uh Yes, I think there's a def- there's a there's a little bit of that, you know, kind of like what are you fussing over? And it's like, well, as far as I'm concerned, people are spending a lot of money, and as we have seen with building prices over the last the cost of of constructing anything, but particularly single dwellings, it seems, has risen immeasurably. I mean, as in, I say immeasurably, not because we can't look at it in re- in reverse and work out how much it's gone up, you know, crazy percentages like we've never seen. But the fact that I really don't know where we're going, like is that crazy sort of going to continue? I don't know. But it's not, again, it comes, it's not just the money that's being spent. It's the time, it's the intellectual and emotional investment that people are putting into it. And we need to respect that. As when I say we, the building industry needs to respect that. So when I kind of hear about stories where our projects have not many of our projects, but some of them do go off on these, you know, a client takes them away to a DNC company and whatever, whatever. And you see the process that then happens, you know. And sometimes we hear from those clients afterwards and they go, well, it got built and we like the design, but it wasn't the best process. And we're not sure that everything's been finished the way that we thought it would. And you kind of say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that or I'm, I'm glad it got finished, you know, and that you're living in it and you're enjoying it, you know. So I'm never disingenuous or, or, you know, unkind to people and it's kind of interesting when people reach out and they want to tell you that they they built it and they did the very best that they, they could, you know, it's kind of an interesting sort of interaction. But it's it's true that the priorities are different from, from well, from client to client but, I mean, definitely builders, you know. There are some who are definitely just on a mission to get it finished which is a reasonable thing to expect because we all know that the longer a contract gets extended and drawn out, the more problematic it is generally for the for the builder in terms of the financial model or offer that that contract was built upon, right? So there is a time factor, but there is a difference between just building something and actually putting a bit more thought into it and going, what is the purpose what is the why of this project, you know? And that's something that we start off with clients very early and I feel like we have an ethical obligation to sort of really ask why are you doing this project because we have definitely had clients start projects with us where I'm not sure that they know why they're doing the project and we work really hard to get to the heart of it. And in many ways I'm glad that some of those projects, those clients said, look, we're not going to continue. And I think, well, that's good because if you keep continuing, you're really just wasting your money because it doesn't matter how amazing my designs are, I can't see how this project is fulfilling uh, the needs that you have. Maybe you need to sell the house and go somewhere else or whatever whatever it is. So I, I, I don't want projects to continue and keep sort of, invoicing clients for something that I think is a dead duck, you know, or is a project that needs needs to be rethought or needs to stop so that clients can think about why they're, they're doing it. I think 
I feel that we have an obligation as a profession to also inform our clients about projects that need to be reconceived, you know. But I know architects who they just want to invoice people. <laughs> You know, and I'm going to hear the, sorry, I shouldn't be here sort of, you know, casting aspersions about fellow members of the profession, but, you know, it's it's only because we hear stories from people who've come to us who have been through an, un, an, unsatisfa- an unsatisfactory process with another architect. And I, again, in those instances would never, because you don't know the full story, but it's it's, I do try to work through with people about, well, why do you think that happened or whatever. And, again, it's about uh, the the client doesn't take responsibility for their project. You're not forcing. I'm not forcing my clients to do these projects. So, it is about the clients understanding what the why of why am I doing this project? You know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that we can also talk about is some of your your projects where you've got very particular community focused projects and the projects where. We want all of our projects to be fantastic and completed and built, but then there are some people who have the low budgets but the great, great need. Um, they're the ones who really require that work but maybe the budget isn't there. Did you want to talk a little bit about some of those projects and how you manage those, mm-hmm. yeah, those sort of projects that are very worthy and, um, yeah, maybe a little bit uh, difficult with the budgets that they have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we well, we've done a. I mean, we've actually done a couple of projects that have had interesting challenges in relation to how brief meets budget. One project we did quite a while ago now that we did for a church in uh, Redfern or on the border of Redfern, Waterloo. They had managed to secure a grant through the city of Sydney, and this grant, with a bit of extra money from some of the parishioners from the church was to take an existing kitchen in a fairly bit of a dilapidated sort of, well, quite a dilapidated state, but uh, that was in the church hall and convert it and upgrade it to being a commercial kitchen so they could take their burgeoning soup kitchen ministry, which was sort of in partnership with Oz Harvest. So Oz Harvest were bringing um, ingredients and doing all sorts of things so that the soup kitchens could, uh, so they could actually make the food for the soup kitchen and also provide food packages They had been running it out of literally the back of the church, like as in, you know, you walk in the front door at church and the altar's up the front and they literally had it off a table, like a folding table. It was unreal the number of people they had coming through on two days a week. And so the church had had a bit of a change of the way that the property that the church had was being managed. So there was the old church was actually a blacket and, and this church hall. And so it was decided that, they would upgrade this kitchen. It was a very small amount of money. They had a very small budget for architects' fees. We were invited to undertake the job because of a personal connection who was at that church and knew that I probably would have an appetite more than a a bigger practice who maybe had a bit of a name for doing church work simply because we were smaller but also that was an interesting project. And so we accepted the fact that, you know, this wasn't going to be a fee earner, <laughs> much of a fee earner, but what we recognised was that also with the amount that the church had as a grant, they really needed something that could work so they could sort of almost proof of concept, like we've got a, a base level working commercial kitchen but we the bones are there and as money comes along we can add more shelving and we can add this and we can add that and beef up the, the spec of the space over time. And really, this was a project where because of the minuscule budget, design had to do a lot of work and design had to think many, many years ahead. The design, sort of the the value of design, good design in this project was um, immense because of this need to be able to create something that was compliant, that could um, meet the future needs, that wasn't going to be difficult to add to. And that also was as economical as possible to build into this existing sort of to um, alter and build into this existing space. And the interesting thing about this project was that we had proposed, so the people who live in this area have, have many challenges. You know, they are in social housing. They're usually on, dis- they're on pen- disability pensions or social welfare payments. They have comorbidities in terms of mental health and physical health issues. And 
and many of them had had social anxieties and struggles. So it was really complex community. And for some of the people who came to that soup kitchen, coming in the door of the church hall was a struggle. They 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 were so poorly socially adjusted because of all these ish, different issues and challenges. And I said, look, I really think, okay, we've got this great roller shutter thing in this hall where we can set up tables to feed people and distribute food packages, but what about if we change this existing window, which was a daggy, terrible, you know, 1970s sliding window um, that I think let in more air <laughs> than anything else in the building. I said, what if we made this a servery with a bifolding window? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to cost a lot of money and da 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 I said, but I'm just thinking about your mission, you know. Can we prioritise this so that you can serve the community as best as possible so that these people who it might take a long time to get their trust for them to even come in the building, that they can come to this window and even just go home if that's the limit of their ability to socially interact for the whole week, you know. So what happened was we were not, there was, we weren't managing the contract. We were available to the builder just for questions. And then we got this request to check shop drawing for the window. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to do the window. <laughs> and it was because we had made this really strong case for the window being the way that they could really extend the ministry and extend the welcome because the whole thing is about welcoming and it's not this is not something that they're doing to try and get more members at church this is purely because they see an enormous need in the community and so I was so struck by the fact that I got asked I mean you know normally when you get asked to look at a shop drawing and you're not doing contract admin it's in construction you're like I'm not looking at that shop drawing excuse me I don't think I've ever been so glad to review an unsolicited (laughs) shop drawing in my whole life because I knew that it meant that they were going to do the survey. And it's, you know, when you look at the project on our website, you go, oh, it's a pretty ordinary bifolding window with a, it's quite a nice timber survey that someone had made. But when you understand the social value of the window and that change and that they were willing to spend that money that they thought they just couldn't spend, to me that sort of, I don't know, it, it was like a, a big tick for good design and the power of design and making a case for how small, even small changes can completely change how a building connects with community. Um, and what was interesting was that we entered the project into a competition and we ended up winning a whole bunch of amazing outdoor urban furniture that the church could leave out permanently and so that people could sit in the outdoor courtyard between the church and the church hall, which, again, was something that they had wanted to do. And so by doing this project, we managed to leverage it further and further improve, then extend the use of this window and the server out into this this courtyard. And so it's, you know, again, the, the, the fee is almost sort of unimaginably small, but the social benefit and I think the goodwill for the profession that comes out of those actions is you can't measure that. Yeah, and I think there's there's definitely some projects where they've got a great financial incentive to work on them, but this is one of those projects where the benefits of, you know, if you had been able to be engaged as well through contract administration, that could have also been a great way to benefit those that the client so that they could get that full service at the end and see it through exactly as per the documentation. But I guess the underlying benefit of the design was still inherent when you saw the the results at the end. Mm. And, yeah, how did that change that community? Did it make a huge impact? I mean, it's I, yeah, I, I, we, we were actually invited to come along one Friday that they had it and the numbers that they had of people had increased significantly, A, because they could properly cater for people, they could sit them down, they weren't just sort of hovering around the back of the church building feeling uncomfortable and having nowhere to sort of actually eat. And they had managed to start using the urban furniture, which had planters, integrated planters, to start growing herbs. So it had started a bit of a community garden. So that was another sort of outreach aspect of what they were doing was that 
they were able to invite people to maybe, well, you know, do you want to come on a Wednesday and we'll do a bit of weeding, you know, <laughs> amongst the herbs. Uh, and so because the soup kitchen was a safe place and a place that people knew, it's another place that people could come. Yeah, they still, I, I believe that they're still doing that ministry. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's I think that's lovely and, I mean, there's there's definitely an argument that I think a lot of architects are talking about at the moment, which is you know full services um, should almost be a requirement on on their projects. In that instance, I mean, how do you feel about that as someone who is you know convener of the the APA exam? I mean, New South Wales, but then also who is uh, teaching contract administration. How do you feel about that that space where contracts now are changing dramatically? The role of the architect is shifting. And the ability to actually do that that full administrative work is is sort of being pulled back gradually over time. I have had many conversations with lots of people, both within the profession and outside the profession, about architects administering contracts. I've had people who are a similar sort of vintage to me, you know, so I've I finished uni 25 years ago, so you can all do your carbon dating and work out how old I am. <laughs> who have said to me, Melanie, we think it's outrageous that our graduates who are doing really great work need to know all this stuff about contract admin. There's no way that they're ever going to use it because of the scale of practice that we are. It's ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. To which I have said, well, A, that graduate may not always work in large practice. Some large practices do still, you know, it's not common, but they still do do contract administration. Many practices do design scope management, all these sort of para services that sit around and inform the administration of the contract. And I think it's really important that architects, if they're in that situation, understand how their decisions, whether they're novated to the builder or they're still working with the original client, understand how the decisions that they are assisting either party to make interact with the administration of the contract and you're only going to understand how those inter- how what you're doing interacts with and can affect positively and negatively the administration of the contract if you actually understand how contracts work so that's my <laughs> kind of answer to people the naysayers who've said oh architects don't do contract admin really melanie like it's just these people who run small practices like you and it's like well that's not true I've heard some really interesting, I've in fact heard about, in fact, some councils deciding that they do want architects to be doing contract administration on public projects because they feel that there is a, there's better risk management and they feel that then the architect has, they're actually, they're actually getting better value out of all the fees that they spent on the architect and the architect's team in the first place. So we are seeing some different thinking about who is the contract administrator in projects that are other than, oh, sorry, these uh, small-scale projects, whether they be individual dwellings or small community projects, projects where the client is considered to be uneducated or a lay person, you know. There are a lot of project managers I know who actually really don't know how to undertake contract administration or they it's not really their area of expertise. It's not something that they necessarily have spent a lot of time doing in however they got to being a project manager. And so we shouldn't assume that the knowledge doesn't sit. I think that's another very dangerous thing. I think there are just people out there in the profession who think that the the know-how around contracts just doesn't exist in the profession anymore. And I think that is absolute rubbish. You know, I I think that actually going back to what I was saying before, I think the, the, the client extracts the most value from the fees they have paid the architect to do the design and documentation. They get the most value out of that when they engage the architect to do contract administration because the architect is the holder of all of the history. And so when something comes up and there's a problem, there's a latent condition or we have to rethink the detail because of a supply issue or some other matter that comes up, the architect goes, a good architect says, this is what the client is trying to achieve. These are the considerations. Let's think of another way of doing it. And they're drawing on the whole history of the project to help the client and help everyone make the right decision and execute the right alternate 
solution. And when you take the architect out of that, yeah, sure, they can do design scope management and these para services that sort of hang around the outside. But ultimately, there's more value by being there on the ground, running the contract admin and being on site. So... And being sort of the central node for for quality assurance, I guess as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think because I mean, quality quality assurance and and how we determine the quality of a building, there are lots of different definitions of that. You know, I I've been to sort of relatively, you know, recently completed commercial buildings. You know, I've wandered around with a friend who's an architect and saying, "Oh yeah, you know, really happy with the builder's job," and I'm sort of walking around looking at the level of finish and going, ah, okay, you know, (laughs) and then people then and then people will get defensive and they say, oh well that's what's acceptable in the commercial sector. I'm like, yeah, but again, you can't pretend begin to pretend that these people who are doing these jobs in the commercial sector from a building point of view aren't then coming back across into residential other types. You know, this is why we have such divisiveness in the building industry you know it's about who can I hand the risk to who can I palm this off to where is the care factor around what we're doing and ultimately doesn't matter whether the piece of glass gets installed in a residential project or a commercial project that is embodied energy that is time and money that's been spent and we should as a as a community and as a we should expect that the building industry be interested in a quality that. Uh, fits with what we want to achieve as a community from a sustainability point of view, if nothing else, because there's an awful lot of wastage that comes from just poor workmanship by people going, oh, I guess we better do it again, or I'll oh, chuck that out, or that's that's a defect. Well, if it had been done properly in the first place, it probably wouldn't have been a defect. So the care factor is not just about architects being prissy pants kind of, that's not my quality. It's about a care factor around how... Do we show good governance with the materials that we're deciding to use to build the buildings we're building? I think that's a really good note to finish on. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else you'd like me to rant about today? (laughs) No, that was a great rant. No, thank you so much for sharing all those wonderful stories and your experiences in this space and talking about ethics and contract admin and um, these very important roles that the architect plays and their position on, on our projects. So thank you so much for joining us today, Melanie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Registered Architect and Director of Bale Architecture, Melanie Bale-Smith. Thank you so much for sharing your stories regarding ethics in architecture. We can't wait to see what you do next. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.